So I'd like to say welcome to Sophia. Sophia is a recent graduate from Backstage Academy, a place where I was the Associate Dean for three years. And while I taught there, uh, I came to know quite a number of students and watched as they developed. And by time I left, you were in the process of completing your final year, if I'm correct. I think we just started our dissertation. Yes. So today's podcast really is to find out from Sophia where she was at the time she did her studies at Backstage, what course she did, why she did it. And also in the short space of time since leaving, she's done some really spectacular events. And we need to sort of ascertain, particularly for our audience, if the skill set that she acquired at university did prepare her for the industry that she wanted to go into and the jobs that she's currently doing and potentially will do in the future. So, Sophia, please introduce yourself, your background, who you are, where you're from originally, and the university course that you attended. Okay, so hi everybody. Uh, I'm Sophia, I'm 26 years old. Uh, I grew up in Scotland, but moved to England when I was about 15 um, and went to university in England, which was Backstage Academy just outside Leeds in Wakefield. Um, that was quite an exciting time. <laughs> yes, you, you could you could say Wakefield was is is located in a place in Yorkshire for those of us in the international audience. Um, that is it's not the centre of the universe in terms of events and events education but there is something unique about backstage and production park which i'm sure you will elaborate on sophia yeah uh so backstage academy um is a university that is built on production park which as you can guess is predominantly a, produ a production-based industrial area um so it has a number of companies that they work with um, and warehouses that they use to build and rehearse existing events that usually come through backstage, they'll build their sets, um, rehearse there and then go out on tour. Um, it's also a university that specialises in live events um, and it's known for how hands-on it is, I suppose. It's it's a very active course. Um, obviously, there's event courses all over the world, never mind the country. But particularly, Backstage Academy is known for trying to give it give their students a really hands-on, physical approach to the industry, and not just the educational, written, um, kind of standard in universities. Yeah, and and for us, for those of you out there, this is not a promotion for the course. This is basically Sophia it's giving. A, it, will, it, will, it will be seen. It, it will it will be seen that way. But we're trying to give a true reflection on acquired skill and knowledge, and particularly a course that is built around, like you said, practical skill set, and how that translates to while you were there to where you are now and where you intend to go into the future. Because there's a lot of students out there who will go on a course for three years, like you said, there are many courses across the UK and the country that will say we have a practical aspect to our course. And then they find that it's probably one module and and it's only one module per year and it doesn't give them enough for them to feel confident or competent 
or qualified enough to go out there and perform at the level that they want. So we're just trying to make that difference, um, understand that difference between other students who have been on, let's say, not similar courses, but course that may have a similar title, but may not have the similar input and output. Yeah, Backstage Academy has a number of resources that makes it different from the university, uh, from other universities, I should say. Um, and it's those resources such as the warehouses that they own, the companies that they work with, um, and they have ongoing business with um, that makes it so different. They create an experience for their students that is completely practical. Okay. And very progressive. So while you were on the course, what was the title of your course? Uh, so mine was stage management. Mine was the bachelor's in stage management. And what, um, were the key, what were the key modules that you felt really did deliver for you to where you are today? What are the key modules you look back and you think they were really instrumental as a progression, if you would like to make sure that they were what they were? Uh, Honestly, I can't remember the name of most of the modules. However, some of the activities that we did, and I can say that the number one most helpful thing I ever learned was how to mark out. Because, oh my goodness, when you think of marking out a stage, you think it's very simple until you have a circular stage. <laughs> when you're working with a circular stage, everything changes and especially if it's not quite a full circle or if the stage in general is just a completely different shape it is so difficult to mark it out as you need to so i know so, it's quite so maths and ge geometry was um, a, a skill set that you had prior to you coming <laughs> or did you oh no i knew nothing about geometry before attending but because it was only a few lessons but because you're doing it in a hall or on a stage and you're like standing there with your lecturers physically using the tools and physically doing the activity you just learn it and it has become so useful so many times and of all the things i learned i didn't think it would be that so so we'll, we'll come back to that that aspect because like you said that you 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 saw or you were able to reflect on something that you did at uni and you are now using it right now. So we'd like to talk about that later on to see how that has translated into an event that you are currently or have worked on since leaving uh, university. <clears throat> so like you said, you're from Scotland. So did you did you come to university with any prior knowledge or was it completely new to you? Um, It was a bit of both really. So my brother had worked in the industry um, for about 10 years before I came to uni. Um, but I just didn't know it. <laughs> I used to, he used to take me along to theatre productions, to shows, to concerts, to festivals, anything he was working on. But when I saw Backstage Academy and I applied, I had no idea. Because if you don't, work in the industry you don't fully understand the industry so I apply I get accepted I go to uni and I get a phone call from my brother saying hey that's what I do and I was like that makes so much sense okay now I understand what you do for a living because I've just when I was like so much younger I'd just be like yeah I'm going to the pantomime with my brother not really understanding the gravity of what his job is so I did have some understanding of the events industry from my brother, 
but also at the same time I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So so some people who take on a stage management course one would hope that first like you said you understand how theatre productions fit within a, a theatre and not only that but also the whole production and scheduling um, that goes with working with actors, performers, yeah. technicians, theatre managers and, and so forth. Did you get that type of experience and understanding as well within the course or, or on, on any practical level? Yeah, um, less of a practical level though, um, because I think it's important to kind of differentiate here. Um, because you still have to pass the year. You still have to do your subjects and your written, etc. So that was usually in the terms of items that we would have to attend to as a stage manager. So it would be the budgets, it would be the like meetings, it'd be schedules, it'd be timesheets, it'd be tr like tracks, theatre tracks, etc. Um, so that is that would be our written that would be what we would learn in our lessons more often than not would be how to manage mm -hmm. and how to physically do your own and read others which i think not a lot of people understand how important it is to be able to read others just as much as build your own yep okay that's good that's a really good point so that may be again picked up later on yeah so let so let's move on now so you've left university You've got your, what did you get for your degree? Was it a first? I hope it was a first. It was a 2-1 because I definitely let myself down with the dissertation. Okay. But we don't need to go into that. No. So let's say you got a high 2-1. Right. It was a high 2-1. It was a high. Okay. So you so you left university September, sorry, not September. It would have been July, your graduation would have been? graduation was september but we september. finished in july in july and that was and that would have been 2018 mm -hmm. yes right you're not <laughs> yeah. right so where was your next step where did you have a plan of where you wanted to go did you have a job did you have an opportunity out there for you what was your initial thoughts now now you're going to go and take that skill set and apply it somewhere I wanted to be able to just jump straight into the industry um, because that's what you hope to do when you finish uni. Yep. Um, but as is the case for most people, it did not work out like that. So I actually worked uh, in a local bar, but I stayed in Wakefield um, mm -hmm. only for about six months, I think it was, but it was enough time for me to attend to and keep the contacts that I had built. Um, so during that six months, I think my first job was um, called the Berluti Project, which was just a release of a new designer shoe. They, they were releasing a new shoe and showing it at a very private event to some of their uh, clientele. Hmm. And it was very simple. It was something like three or four projectors, um, uh, project ma projection mapping onto a table and then they were all eating dinner and we just had to provide you know the lighting the projection the programming etc um and i was project manager for that um and it was done by lucid technologies actually <clears throat> which was run by students at the time right 
Yeah. So, so there'll be somebody sat there listening to this thinking, what is projection mapping? So without, without going into it in too much depth for the people out there who may not know how projection mapping works and why it is actually crucial within the whole area of visualization, particularly when you are using, like you said, projections of all sizes and distances. So to be honest, I think the best way to explain it would be to use a table. Um, so projection mapping is when you designate an area um, and onto that area that you've just mapped, you will project images, videos, etc. Um, there's loads of different softwares out there um, that <laughs> I feel like that might be too much information, but you can get software such as Notch, D3, Hippo, um, where you can do live projection mapping and a lot more in depth. You can create your own content, etc. So, um, so, so let me give an, ex a, a, an example of that. So when they have big celebrations, let's say New Year's celebration on and they want to put, present an image on Big Ben, for yes. instance. So That's people will probably people will probably see you know the Union flag mapped onto you know on a, on a on a one of those significant landmark buildings. That that's in it in a sense is projection mapping. Yeah. Would you agree? Yep. Yeah. And the technology that will allow you to do that, you also learned that at university and they had that technology. Yeah. Like you said, like D three and so forth. Yeah. I so on my course in particular there were not D3 lessons because why would there be that would be a bit weird however there was the opportunity to have them mm -hmm. um so the live uh, visual design nice. course and mm -hmm. um, Shannon the lecturer there would often run his own little courses just to be like if any students want to come and learn how to do this come and learn um there were also there were a number of softwares there was also including cad um and sketchup etc where you could learn how to design um so yeah that was really good fun and i did do that because i was a nerd good to hear <laughs> and, I, and i think it's, it's 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 testament to you as an individual and I think for students who, who join a course and they think, well, these are the modules that I need to do to pass the course. So I'll only stick with what I need to do and I won't go beyond that. And I think for those students who think, well, yes, I'll do those modules, but I have an opportunity to go and learn something more beyond what I'm going to be graded on because I don't know, but maybe it might help me in my career long term. And, and that's basically what you were saying. And yes, Shannon, he had the visual design courses, but he opened it up or elements of his course to other students within the, the university, um, which sort of community for them to learn who who probably weren't on his course, but they wanted to learn that new skill set. So I think for any any individual who, who's in a community, would you advocate that given the opportunity where you can you can update your skill set to go ahead and do it? Absolutely. No hesitation there, absolutely. Um, for me personally, CAD is probably one of the biggest, ex easiest examples and biggest example because at university I had no idea what it was. I could see people using it and I could see what they produced, um, but actually how to even open a CAD file was unbeknown to me. 
So even just to have those couple of hours in front of the computer where I would learn the absolute basic, at least now, whenever I get sent a CAD file, I can A, recognize it, B, open it, and three, move it around and understand what I'm looking at. So I might not be able to build anything in CAD, mm -hmm. but I know what I'm looking at. Yeah, and, and that is vital because I think for anybody working in any sector, whether it's conferences, exhibitions, festivals, uh, theater, like you said, you know, somebody's gonna have to produce that plan, that layout, that visualization, that 3D area, and they're going to use that software. That's gonna be probably their dominant software that they're gonna produce it in. Someone will produce it and sketch it up, and then someone will send it to, to you, the designer or the production manager, and they'll be able to, like you said, be able to not just open it up, but able to understand exactly what it's what it's trying to translate as a as a as a drawing or or a three D image, and yep. how to how to navigate themselves through that file. So so sometimes you may not be completely conversant with a software program, but there, you have a sufficient amount of knowledge to then communicate with somebody who has produced something in that software program. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. So like you said, you graduated, you left university, you had your first job, you did some um, uh, minor promotion for, for a company and using your visualization skills. So what happened after that, six months down the line after leaving, leaving uni? So it was about six more months in the UK and um, just kind of floating about, finding my feet. Um, I knew that I possibly wanted to move out to the UAE, um, but I wasn't sure how to go about doing it. So honestly, I took every job that I could, predominantly working in a bar, just to give myself the safety net, the cushion, to financially be able to drop everything and go. Um, I was constantly applying for jobs everywhere, and I was reaching out to my contacts as well. However, it was also winter, so it was, you know, the, the quietest period in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got a phone call um, from Field Moran Associates, a company out here in the UAE, um, asking me to be a production coordinator just on a single project in Dubai. Um, and I think 10 days later I was on the flight and I haven't been home since, or I haven't moved home since. <laughs> I've visited my family and that's about it. So you, So right through the pandemic when a lot of people who worked in the UAE returned um, and they'd been out there much longer than you had. What kept you out there? Why did you stay? I will be incredibly honest and say it was my brother. Um, so he is quite high up and very well known in the UAE. Um, and I was living with him at the time. So as COVID hit, he just went, you don't pay for anything. You don't do anything when and if you have a position that is when you can contribute. Um, but he wasn't, he was out of events work, but still doing work to keep himself going in the industry. Um, and I actually had a job at the time, which I then lost um, a few months in. Um, but predominantly, in all honesty, it was just my brother's support. Um, it, it was not my own skill set. It was not the industry. It, it was just support from my brother and my sister-in-law who, I lived with as well so they That's literally fun. they were just incredibly supportive and they went you're all good because I thought I would have to go home I thought That's I was just going to get on a flight and go and he was like nah this, this is where you're meant to be this is where you're staying 
Okay, so so we went through the pandemic, and like you said the industry went into a, a long hiatus. Uh, a lot of people left the industry. A lot of people gravitated back to their homeland um, because, like like we said, it, you know they they weren't resident in that country for a longer period of time, and they didn't have the financial wherewithal to sustain themselves. So as we came out of the pandemic, um, what was one of your next project that you worked on? Well, I still had a bit of a cushion left over from my previous job just before the pandemic. So I, I was quite lucky. So I could kind of, as events started to kickstart again, um, I was quite lucky to pick some of the nicer ones, I suppose, and not just grab whichever job I could get. Um, so I worked for Field Moran Associates for a little bit longer, just doing odd freelancing jobs for them. Um, and then I got a position with Expo 2020. Right. So when you say you got a position with Expo 2020, a, a lot of people, again, who may be in the industry or may not be in the industry, will probably not know how significant the Expo is within the event industry. Because there are a number of mega events that say they're mega, but not really are mega. The Expo is one of those events that really takes the title to another level, considering that this event has been around since the 1800 when it first took place in Crystal Palace in England. So now you're working on an event which is a trade exhibition where, com where countries, not companies, countries come and have their own pavilion at this mega event and people come in their millions to attend this event. So I know when I taught you I, I remember telling you guys about this event. And, um, I remember hearing about this event. So so when you got the, the call <laughs> to work on the, the expo, what sort of background research did you do to understand why the UAE decided to bid for this event and what impact it would have on their country? None. <laughs> I was honestly at the time um, looking for any position that I thought I would enjoy. I was absolutely had my heart set on enjoying the position, not just getting a position because we're out of COVID and <clears throat> everything snowballing. And I saw an advert online um, for a company that I'd never even heard of in a country that in Australia uh, saying that they needed people for the expo but they had to have their own visa etc so I was like okay well I meet the requirements um, and I could remember the conversation that we had the lecture that we had on expo um, and because I had been there throughout the build so I'd previously worked for expo on on very small projects just not at expo so I'd seen parts of the build I knew that the country was in such a hype because I'm living here. But other than that, I, I was like, oh, I'll find out when I get there. You know, it looks exciting. Everybody seems so interested in it. And I did not expect it to be the scale that it was. So as you were able to reflect on it now, and you, as you've been living out in Dubai for a, a good few years now, do you understand why Dubai took on the expo and what was the theme of the expo in Dubai before we talk about what you did as a as a project there? Yes. So the theme was uh, mobility, sustainability and opportunity. Um, 
and it was Dubai's way of building for a better future. Um, and it was huge. <laughs> it, they give, give, give us a scale of how big the expo site would was. They built a town. Or no, they built a village. They built a village in the middle of the desert. Um, to house how many people? There were over 150 countries and there were over 180 pavilions. Um, the amount of people that attended, I think it ended on the 25 million mark, but I could be give or take a million or two. I remember hitting the 20 million mark because I was in um, Alwassel Plaza at the time, um, which was the dome in the centre. Um, so I remember hitting that mark. Um, but it, the scale of it is so difficult to to project and to teach people that, oh, it was mind-blowing. It was a city. There was bikes to get around. There were scooters to get around. There were buggies to get around. The parking went on for miles and miles and miles. There were, they built an entire tram system just to be able, just to be able to, for the public to use, to get in and out because there still wasn't going to be enough car parks. Um, I mean, I think what, as it was scaling up for the, um, cause it ha the event happens how many years? Four years, is it not? There you go. Yes. Oh, thank so, goodness. <laughs> so, so, every, so every, 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 every country who decides to host the event, cause you have to bid to host the event, yeah. just like you have to bid to host a FIFA World Cup and Olympic Games. So when yeah. they bid, when they bid to host that event, I heard they were going to build a sustainable city of the future. Did you think that, that that mission, that vision was translated at the expo, a sustainable city? What was your thoughts as a viewer, as a spectator? I'm going to say yes and no. Um, so for what expo was and while it was running, I think it was absolutely a sustainable city. Uh, and it was a city of the future. It, it was an incredible place that they built absolutely incredible um however for it to keep going i'm not sure because now the expo has ended they think of it like the olympics they built a city so now that it's over they have to know what to do with the city um and in london after the london olympics um i believe that all the housing and they turned it into housing, student housing, and local community centres, etc. So, um, Dubai are using many of the spaces um, for some of the local companies to host small-scale events and to keep it open for people to come and admire and see as as a park. Uh, but some of the buildings, some of the physical pavilions. Um, are not sustainable. However, they are working together at the moment to try and find sustainable options for them. Um, so, you know, instead of just knocking it down and putting it in the bin, how can they reuse it? How can they uh, maybe keep it? There's quite a few pavilions that they've actually kept and there's many buildings that they've kept and they're trying to adapt and trying to reuse. Because I think for any event of that side, when you have a mega event in, in, its, in its title, one of the key things which you mentioned is about legacy. Um, and if you spend tens of billions of pounds on or millions and billions to, to bid and host an event of that size, 
you would want a good legacy from that, not just in terms of the mission or the, mis the message that you wanted to put out from the country itself and where they feel the future will be for sustainable cities, but making sure that that landmark of that city continues to be a shining beacon for the for the for the future in regards to that because we're all well every country is grappling with the problem of how to keep clean air how to keep get um, cheap energy or low energy cost have a sustainable environment that is not just sustainable in terms of the energy that you use but sustainable in terms of the the healthy environment that people um, exist in and grow up in and grow old in so, so it's a, it's a difficult ask for one country to give a complete sort of um, <laughs> answer to that question, and and for me to say to you, did it did it meet all of those, would be difficult for you to give a complete an ass complete assessment of that, and I'm Absolutely. sure they'd be doing their own um, evaluation of that in the short to long term, but the but the the opinion, and that's all we can go on today is your opinion um, in terms of because you worked throughout the whole six months, should I say, on that. So in my personal opinion, I think it was very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, they they are they have selected um, certain pavilions and buildings that are legacy pavilions and buildings. So they are the ones that will not be touched. They will remain as they are. So for example, the sustainability pavilion is absolutely huge and it has lots of touch points. It's interactive. So kids could go on field trips and they could go to the sustainability pavilion and they can learn a lot about sustainability. Um, but I think the main legacy point for the expo would have to be Alwassel Plaza. Um, Explain. So for those of you that haven't seen or don't know, Alwassel Plaza is at the very centre of the city. You cannot walk between the towns, let's say, without going through Alwassel Plaza. Um, it is a giant dome uh, that is fully project, projection mapped and it's all outside. In the centre, whilst we were live, there was a stage um, and it was the heart of Expo. The logo for Expo is Awaso Plaza. Um, and then all around the outside of it is this gorgeous park, absolutely gorgeous park uh, that they are keeping intact. And now that they've removed the stage, they are still keeping the full park intact for everybody to always have access to Awaso Plaza. It is the shining point of Expo 2020. Right, so tell us then what was your job in regards to the stage management of the central iconic part of that event? You set me up for that. <laughs> <laughs> you set me up for that. Um, so <laughs> I was stage, I was one of the stage managers for Alvaso Plaza Expo 2020. Yes. Um, so there were, let's say, two teams that ran Alwasso Plaza. There was the day team, which was one company, and there was the evening team, which was another company. And I was one of the stage managers for the evening team. So every evening we would have around four shows that we had produced on repeat throughout the evening for everybody to come and see at scheduled times. So there were the four shows with cast, and then I believe we had 10 or 20 projection shows that had no cast um, and then also Expo themselves would produce specialised events. 
So the specialised events are the ones that people most likely heard about, such as Coldplay coming. Um, the opening and closing ceremony was, of course, held in Awasal. Um, Christina Aguilera playing and Black Eyed Peas and whoever else played. Um, so those and, are the specialised and, and you had to make sure that the stage worked impeccably for all those international artists. I ran away. How difficult was that or not? single time I would help during like during the during the shift period but the second it came to them actually coming onto the stage I went home I was like okay bye everything's set up everything works for you we have kept this in pristine condition we have shown you everything you need to know but you are giving me a night off so good night <laughs> and I would go home and I would just have takeout in bed because <laughs> so, otherwise so you're working seven days a week every evening without fail yes because that stage ran every single day live every performances night. throughout the whole six yeah. months yeah. right so that's a very intensive piece of performance and yeah. some people will say well if you go to a theater theater production will run for years <laughs> but it may not run every day but it will probably run at least two or three times a week yeah so yes that's an intensive piece so so how big was the team you said it were a number of stage managers, but the, the technical team, the production team, give me approximation or give the listeners approximation of how big was that team to run for six months every day, day and night. Oh, there was over a hundred of us, but I don't think it was quite 150. Um, but I remember that we reached 48 nationalities on site at one point. There was one point where we were doing a poll of how many national different nationalities we had on site and we had over 48 so we were all very excited about that um right. i so hope we 50 but i'm not sure if we did so who put together the scheduling for the staffing to work at those intensive times throughout the days and nights and weeks and months different departments all the different departments would manage their own teams because it was too big if <laughs> you you couldn't ask a single person so we had our producers who were running the shows um they were on site at all times and and they were fantastic they were our go-to people especially as stage managers obviously if anything went wrong we would go to the producer um because that is who we need to put the hammer down and say this is what this is how we need to resolve it um so we had three producers on rotation at all times and then we would also have a couple of extra. Um, but we had three main producers and one of them would have to be on site in the office working whenever they needed to work. And the other one would be on site in our wassail at all times whenever we had shows. Um, and then the stage management team, there was six of us, seven. Of, there, there was seven of us throughout. We ended with five. Some people may, may listen to what you said earlier on when you said when, when you had the big shows on like Coldplay, Christian Aguilera and many, many others, I'm sure, and you decided to go home to bed and they would have thought to themselves, well, that would be an opportunity to go and see, a, see an artist that I've never seen before. And, and I want you to put that into context because anybody who has worked in, worked in live events will understand exactly what you just said, because it gets to a point where you realise that 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 you don't need to see these these major artists you've done your job all they need to do is go on stage and do their job you don't need to go there and watch them as as a, as a spectator because your role and your 
position now is not as a an audience member. Your role is now an employee and you and you have to look at it completely different and you've got to take time out for yourself and not spend that time, you know, ogling over major artists and hanging outside the backstage for their signature. Yes, <laughs> there are absolutely times where, do you know what, it's 100% worth it. Um, when Christina Aguilera played um, the clo- the company that were running the closing ceremony, um, invited all the daily Awaso Plaza workers to come and watch the closing ceremony to experience it and to be an audience for them. Um, so of course, absolutely I went. I also had no idea that Christina Aguilera was going to be there, so I was very excited when that happened. Um, but no, there's times where it's completely worth it, such as then, where it was such a shock, it was a surprise, and it was a great moment. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's absolutely the odd artist that I would sacrifice my evening in for in a heartbeat. But 90% of the time, I'm going to go home. I'm overworked, I'm and, exhausted, and I live my life and that, every that, day on that And side. that's when it comes to your own well-being. And we've got to remember that within our industry because there are a lot of people who, who coming up to COVID and even before COVID, the mental stress and the mental well-being and the ill health within the event industry was something that's not been talked about. And this is probably not the co- podcast to really delve into that. But I just wanted to make sure that, like you said, you, if you don't take control of your own health and well-being and take time out, sometimes it can be overwhelming the industry that you're in. So I'm actually currently studying um, a master's in psychology for those exact reasons. There is not enough mental health support within the live events industry and being overworked is glorified and too many people think that it's a good thing and I had such a fantastic team and my production stage manager was an amazing manager and he would do absolutely everything he could because he knew that we were all putting in the hours so whenever there was an opportunity for somebody to have additional time off he would be the one to make sure that everybody could he would be the one to push us and make sure that we were resting and that we were trying to actually have a break um, because burnout is real, mm, yeah. real. Yeah. And scary. Very scary. Yeah. And I won't ask the question. Don't worry if anybody did burnout at the expo. But like I said, that, that's that's for another another podcast. But it, it is a point that we have to address. And even someone who, as yourself who've just started in the industry, it, it's something that all young adults who are looking to become, um, let's say, ever present in the live event industry or the industry overall, taking care of your health and your well-being is absolutely paramount to look for longevity in this industry. You can absolutely put the work in, but still have boundaries. Mm-hmm. So back on the wonderful. <laughs> the wonderful back on the wonderful live event the stage management of the of the expo and going back to what we said earlier Bon, about what you learned in university had a connection a direct connection to what you did and you said marking out oh. so something that you remembered really well so i i would presume that you did quite a bit of marking out on that circular stage 
oh for, my the, goodness. for the World Expo with all those many events coming on and off? So I had uh, three amazing assistant stage managers, but one in particular that was just always lumped with the marking out. And on my very first day, my associate and I had to mark out the rehearsal stage because we built a stage on site um, to rehearse in. Uh, and it was a complete replica, but that meant it wasn't an exact circle. So we were trying to mark it out and we just couldn't work out how to do it. And it was such a struggle. And then I remember my lecturer uh, actually getting annoyed at me in the lesson where we learned to mark out. And it just kind of brought everything back to me. And I was like, hold on a minute, we've got this. And we kind of built a system then and there, which was amazing because we then built another stage and then we built uh, or then we had another rehearsal area, which we then had to use another stage. So we didn't build that stage as a replica, but we had to mark the stage out on the floor. And then every single time that there was um, someone from the specialized events coming in, so Coldplay or whoever you want to name, they would obviously rip up our markings and put their own down. So we would have to mark out again. And it was just constant there it was a 10 month period from rehearsals to the end of expo and i cannot tell you i genuinely could not give you a number to how many times we had to remark out that stage or a variation of the stage that we were building because we also had our own four shows that we produced but then built additional shows throughout so it was so you were managing your own production, your own performers, your own actors and singers and so forth yep. and ac acrobats, as yep. well as all these international stars and production and production companies coming in to then perform on that stage within a, a tight schedule, one would yep. expect, and in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yes. We had a number of outbreaks. <laughs> right. How did how did that pan out in terms of um, having resources, human resource to upskill and fill, fill in the gaps when things did become problematic like that? So luckily at the beginning, we started with one cast of 100 um, and they were cast X. They learned all the shows, they knew how to do everything. Um, and then we introduced cast Y, who learned the shows from cast X, but also had their own shows. So both casts would know each other's shows, but they all had their individual shows. Mm -hmm. So Cast X, for example, would have two shows and Cast Y would have two shows. And then others, the swings, would know each other's. So whenever there was a COVID outbreak, we could just have a complete cast off and just go, OK, you guys are off. And then this cast can cover you until you've all got your COVID tests and you can all come back individually. Um, but we also had, because Expo was so strict, um, they had their own regulations that were separate to the rest of the UAE. Um, so our close contacts, for example, was within one metre and if we touched. It wasn't, yeah, it, even if it was just a little fist bump, you're a close contact. Yeah, it, it was difficult. And if you were in one metre of each other, you were a close contact. Um, and what would happen then? Would you have to go and get tested? What so was, we actually, protocol? we were very lucky because so 
the main protocol was yes absolutely you would have to go and get tested but because we were al wassel anybody that was in that was a consistent worker within our wassel plaza we actually had our own testing facility in the halls where we rehearsed so just outside the doors to the halls we had our own testing facilities so anybody within either of the two companies that worked in our wassel could get tested immediately and would have the results back within a couple of hours um so that was it a pcr test you had so at first it was just a pcr test every three days Mm -hmm. Then it went to a PCR test every day. Then it went to a PCR and a rapid test every day. So there was about a four month period where I would get a rapid test and a PCR test. And then I'd sit outside the hall, wait for my rapid test to come back. And then when I received it, I would then be allowed to go into the rehearsal space. Um, right. No, no, um, no. That's a good point that you made that they said they set up their own procedure to make sure the, sh the show must go on. Yeah. Right. So did you feel that the policy and the procedure they put in place to protect you as an individual and others and ensure that people could work to meet the next deadline to run the show? Because we knew it didn't run on the year that it should have run on. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the same way, the Olympic Games in Japan didn't run on the same year that it should have um, been delivered. Do you feel that that was sufficient enough? Because some countries went over and above what the guidelines were set out by some of their health professionals or Department of Health. So do, and do you think that that did really work to keep everybody safe? They went over and above. So there was for all different pavilions and for all different areas, there were different regulations based on the outbreaks at the time. Um, and Her Excellency was very strict with the overall Expo guidelines anyway. So Expo itself had its own guidelines and then all the separate pavilions and districts would also have their own guidelines. Um, however, as we were a Wassel Plaza, we had Her Excellency as our governing body. So everything had to go through her and she was so strict. She she had complete systems in place because obviously our Wassel Plaza can't close down. <laughs> Every other pavilion could close down for a day if it needed to, but you can't close down Plaza. The main event, yeah. Yeah. So we all like just because we were in our Wassel, we had even more severe regulations. And I think 90% of the time it really it really was a huge help and was a fantastic deterrent. So let me ask you a question, and, and you may feel that you cannot answer it, but I must, I must ask it in regards to this, because some, let's say, sports personalities and some artists and performers didn't want to get, not so much didn't want to get tested, but they didn't want to take the vaccine. And some countries didn't allow certain athletes into their country at the time when the pandemic was at its, let's say, it's worse. So you, so we saw that as New Zealand literally shut the doors completely to um, anybody coming into the country and really having a real strict um, protocol around the whole pandemic. Whereas some countries did allow you in, but they, you had to have had the vaccine to enter, but yet still go through the testing. So while those artists were coming over and performing, was there a requirement for those artists to have had the vaccine even though you know they had to be tested. What was the sort of protocol there? So you didn't have to have the vaccine for the, if you were visiting, if mm -hmm. you were 
coming to visit, you did not have to have the vaccine, but you did have to have a valid PCR test. However, if you were performing, it was, a, it was a requirement to have the vaccine and all of our performers and all of our staff um, had to have two boosters within the 10 months that we were there. So, or no, sorry, that's incorrect. All of our performers and staff who had not previously had the vaccine were required to get the vaccine and then one additional booster. Um, and then everybody else who had already had the vaccine had to have two additional boosters throughout. So I had previously had both. Um, I, I was actually an individual case. I had both Sinopharm um, vaccines and then I had one Pfizer booster just before starting um, and I still had uh, to have an additional Pfizer booster um, about six or seven months into the job. I had to have another booster because it was just a requirement. It was that or you didn't perform and you didn't come to work. Yep. No, no, I think that's admirable to ensure that people's health and ensure that the containment of a, what was a really, and still is, a, a contagious um, virus. Uh, yeah. And that's mutated into so many different strains. We probably don't even know what strain it's in now um, and whether it will, be, it will dissipate or whether it will come back with some real force later on. So it, it, so it, I had people who were working in, the, in Abu Dhabi and they said, the, it was strict in Abu Dhabi as well. Abu Dhabi was incredibly strict. One of uh, the other stage managers on my team, she ended up becoming, she got promoted halfway through and became senior stage manager. So just bragging about her. Um, she actually uh, lived in Abu Dhabi. So she would travel, it was about an hour drive for her. She would travel the hour every single afternoon and every evening to and from Abu Dhabi. And she would have to get a COVID test every time she left and every time she came back, as well as the COVID tests that she would then get at work. So as much as I had two COVID tests a month for four months, uh, two COVID tests a day for four months, she still doubled the amount that I had. Yeah. And, and when you heard about people living and working in England through the period, you probably thought that it was extremely laxed here in comparison to what was going on in other parts of the world and particularly what's happened in the Middle East, Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Qatar and other similar countries would you say? Yeah, that's a very polite way to put it. Mm, yes, so <laughs> we shouldn't we shouldn't be too irked about what we had had to go through. I know some people went through it far worse than others and lost loved ones and we can't put, make light make light of that in any way but when you're trying to make sure to bring back an industry and bring a mega event to the point when it should be delivered even though it's you know a couple of years late there were there needed there needed to be some stringent um, health protocols put in place to make sure that it could work and could be delivered. Absolutely. So that is, so that is testament to the kingdom and it is testament to the protocols they put in place and the fact that it was followed to the letter um, yeah. to to curb to curb such a stringent uh, a virus that, that plagued it that's plagued that has plagued the world. So. Enough about the pandemic, because everybody may think it's about that. And it's not necessarily about that if you didn't listen from the beginning. And if you didn't, then go back and watch listen from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the cultural aspect, because obviously you're from Scotland, um, born and bred in Scotland. And now you're living and working in a in a country that ha operates on a different religion, different culture. Dubai operates under 
a stricter, um, let's say, theology of the Muslim religion as opposed to Dubai. So people who have worked and lived in Abu Dhabi will know that. And I suppose if you worked and lived in Dubai or traveled to Dubai as holiday, because a lot of people go there now for holiday, but working and living there and coming to a, a country that is totally different to what you lived in for the yes, the best part of your years so far. How did you find that? How did you make that that ad adaptation, adapt, adapt yourself? Remember, it's your opinion. So it wasn't too much of a culture shock, um, luckily, because I had previously visited Dubai. However, it was still a shock. Um, there's so many rules, there's so many regulations. Um, some people like to exaggerate them. So tell us, tell us some of the rules that you felt that you wouldn't have expected that you had to abide by. I remember when I went out there, there was a rule to say that if you were drunk in a taxi, the taxi could take you directly to the police station. So we warned our students not to be drunk on the street as you would in England and do not get into a taxi if you're inebriated because the taxi driver at the time that we were there could directly take you to the police station for being drunk. So they can still do that. Mm -hmm. They absolutely can still do that. However, because it has worked the last few years to progressively change and adapt their culture a little bit more, it's unlikely. You would have to be very insulting and very difficult. You would have to make the taxi driver want to drive you to the police station. I have been in a couple of states before. Um, However, because, because I can still hold a conversation and I can still get into the taxi and get myself home, it's not a problem. They're just like, okay, yeah, fine. You've had a good night. I'm jealous. Let's make sure you get home. Um, honestly, that I think that was a culture shock to know that it had changed. Mm -hmm actually to the culture shock there was that i could go and get drunk and that i could get in the taxi at the end of the night you would have to be in a very difficult place and causing a lot of problems for it to end that way or you would have to um upset the security guards don't ever do that mm -hmm. so obviously the the population in dubai is a prominent a, approximately 2 million that are Emiratis. Correct me if I'm wrong, approximately. Yeah. So they have a large contingent of people who come from various other countries who work in Dubai and they are the migrant workers. And you would have seen them in the country oh, and oh, in country and you would obviously seen them at the event. So I'm not going to get into the contention nature of um immigrant workers coming into the country because and again you are also an immigrant worker coming into their country absolutely as, as that i know people like to call themselves expats but it doesn't make any difference you are a migrant worker in yeah. that in that country so were you told of certain things that you could not do and if you did break certain rules or laws that you could be removed from the country were you warned of those things 
Yeah, um, you can have a child out of wedlock. You can live with anybody that you weren't married to or directly related to. Um, <clears throat> you couldn't wear inappropriate clothing in public. You couldn't ha show any form of affection in public. You couldn't even hold hands with your partner unless you were married. And even if you were married, you could only hold hands with your partner. Um, all of these rules are very relaxed now. Um, I can wear 90% of what I want as long as I'm still respectful because there will be people who don't want to see it and they're not going to go call the cops on you, but you're in their country. Be respectful. Um, same with I can hold my partner's hand in public, but I'm sure not going to get a kiss. <laughs> and, um, I can live with him. However, if I was to do something slightly more illegal and get arrested, that would not help. Um, but you know, nobody's gonna turn up at my door and try and arrest me. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously you can't be gay, uh, although you can now be transsexual. Yeah, that is only in the last six months, I think. You still aren't allowed to be gay, cause you know, that's a choice. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but you can be transsexual. Because mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia has opened its door to tour tourism. And I know you may not know much about Saudi Arabia, but just giving you how Dubai has gone from where it is to where it is now and how Abu Dhabi has gone from where it is to where it is now. But Saudi Arabia is probably 25 years behind where all those countries have, have moved, moved very quickly into the 20th century, but still trying to keep the essence of their religion and their rights protected within the concept of what their country deemed is appropriate, particularly for people who come to live and work and, and want to go there for, for holiday in that respect. So as a progressive country now under a kingdom rule, how do you see Dubai pushing forward? Because now you're living there full time. How do you see it pushing forward? Because um, Saudi Arabia is, is moving very quickly Saudi Arabia is going to overtake Dubai. So I was actually on a five-month project in Saudi mm -hmm. when the laws changed. Um, and I was in the country when the government announced that women no longer had to wear an abaya, uh, no matter what race or anything you were, um, that women could then drive. Yeah. Uh, and the certain licenses could approve alcohol and i was physically in the country at the time i remember flying to saudi in an abaya with my work boots on because of course i had to go straight to site with my work boots on and fully clothed underneath and in whatever degree heat it was at the time um and by the time i left i was heading off to the malls in jeans and a t-shirt the government actually encouraged expats and said often, you would hear it on the radio, on repeat, you would hear it on the news, etc. They would be encouraging expats. They would actually ask them to stop wearing abayas so that all the locals could then get used to it. <laughs> um, and I think Saudi is going to overtake Dubai. I obviously can't be sure. It's just their turnaround is so much quicker than Dubai's was and still has been. Yeah, I think I'm glad you said that because I know it's based on your opinion because you've seen it, you've watched it. I've watched it and as an academic, I've I've seen it and read about it and I've seen the amount of money that um, 
Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has pumped into the event industry in their country. Oh, yeah. And they and they they spent more money in in a in a short space of time than I would say that Dubai has spent in a good number of years to get to where they are today. So they tried to do the industrial revolution in two years, where Dubai has taken twenty years. Yes, and, absolutely. And, yeah, and they they were under strict um, Sharia law. And then, then they had to shift it because tourism wasn't even a thing yes. for Saudi Arabia unless you were a Muslim pilgrimage going to 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 Mecca. So, so to to make that quick distinction, like you said, and to watch that change happen so quickly from where it was to where it is and to where it's going. Going back to what you say, I see the big gold rush for the yes. event industry. And for anybody listening to now, if you're looking at moving out to the Middle East, then the so next place. Don't look at the saturated Dubai. You should be going to Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. I love Dubai. <clears throat> I absolutely love it. I love living out here. Um, mm -hmm. But Saudi is the next place. The prince has, for those of you that are unaware, the prince of Saudi has introduced a 30-30, or 20-30, sorry, my apologies, a 20-30 season festival tourist scheme. And it is him releasing four to five season festivals a year in different areas of Saudi and having these festivals become such huge events. The first one that I worked on was Aldiria season um, and it was connected to the WWE. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also connected to the Formula E. Uh, it was also, it had its own um, state, like main staging ground. And then it had a family fair area. And by family fair area, I mean, it could have given Expo a run for its money. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but it, yeah. like it was a huge event that they physically built again, similar to Expo in the middle of the desert. It was an empty car park that they transformed into this incredible festival site. And he has been keeping these festivals ongoing now for four or five years, excluding the COVID time period. And it's all part of his initiative to open Saudi up to tourism. Um, and for it to absolutely take over, it's going to take over Dubai. I, I have, my sister-in-law has just moved to Saudi to work on projects out there. Um, my brother is there right now. He still lives in Dubai, but he's working on a project. My partner is there on a completely different project. Again, still lives in Dubai, but he's working in Saudi. I have a flight book to Saudi for a project that I'm currently working on in a couple of weeks. Like, you, you can live in Dubai if you want the lifestyle and fly to and from Saudi, no problem. But in all honesty, Saudi is where events are going. Thank you for that. I've been, <laughs> I've been saying this, <laughs> saying this for some time, and I'm glad that someone like yourself, who's now out there, can see it. All you need to do is just pick it, pick up your, your, pick up anything related to the event industry and just read, just read what Saudi yeah. Arabia is doing. I had a friend and colleague I've known for years, and he said he was out there during the pandemic. And in Saudi Arabia, they were building, or he was the project manager to build the largest temporary structure in the world for major events. Was, was is now built in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So, you 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 can't make a comparison until no. you really until you really see what is being built and what they're doing and what they've got planned to do and what has been done in the, in Dubai 
over the past, let's say, 20 years. I, went, I first went to, to Dubai in 2007, um, and they were, they were halfway building the, the Burj. So it, it wasn't even completed. And I remember standing there looking I remember standing there looking at it and the, the taxi driver said to me, he said, that's gonna be the tallest building in the world. And I thought, Are you serious? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, to see to see it actually being see it now completely finished, um, and seeing how the country has moved forward. But yes, and looking at and I think obviously like you said, Saudi Arabia has looked at the rest of the UAE and thought to themselves we can do better and bigger and faster and quicker. They'll bid for the next expo. Japan have obviously won four years time. They'll mm -hmm. bid for the next expo and I'll be shocked if they don't win it. And I'll be shocked if you're not working on it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That's where I expect you to expect to hear and see you on the next expo. You can't take all this skill now and not push it forward into the next expo. That's what everybody does who works on mega events. They go from mega event to mega to event me to mega event because that skill set is so unique to those types of events. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you'll find that out sooner or later. Guarantee you it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. If you haven't I've already. Begun, I've begun that learning curve. <laughs> right. So we're coming up to our last question. Or it could be the penultimate one. But um, your future goals in terms of where you see yourself? So at the moment, um, I'm actually working for a very small production company. Um, they're called Sketch and Build, and they're out here in the UAE, but they're also in the UK. And we work predominantly in the MENA region. So Saudi, Doha, or Qatar, sorry. Um, Saudi, Qatar, UAE, everywhere. Um, and recently, they've predominantly done exhibitions. Um, and I've worked with them a few times. So when I finished Expo, they approached me um, and they've expanded the company quite a bit recently and they want to reach out more into events. And they've done certain events, so they're building a portfolio, but they also needed somebody else who has an event background to kind of jump on. So I'm currently one of their account directors um, and I'm helping them kind of build their profile and expand into events um, and I'm really enjoying it. It's not stage management which is my absolute passion, it's my favourite thing to do and I will be doing it again very soon. Um, however, I'm really enjoying it. It's a fantastic little company, the team are great um, they're really, they're not just saying that they want to make these changes they're really pushing to make these changes and they're really like trying um and they listen to me they want to know um my expertise and they want to hear what i have to say but also they want to teach me which i appreciate because you've always got to learn um so and i have boundaries which coming off something like expo it's i needed boundaries and i have those boundaries um so I get to work from home if and when I see fit. And also I have my own office and I have a work laptop and I can go into the office at 11 o'clock for a couple of hours just because I want to align on a few things and then go back home and keep on going. And it's, it's just really nice to have these boundaries. I don't get a phone call at midnight saying, this has gone wrong. And I'm like, oh, yay. <laughs> like, it's just 
obviously that is going to happen. That's the nature of events, but that's going to happen when I have accounts going live and not 24 seven every single day. It's only going to be when I have live accounts. So it's a really nice change. Um, and I'm really hoping that I can help the company grow as much as they're trying to help me grow. Um, so it's, it's so nice. It's so nice. I'm also not freelancing. I have an actual job. I don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 re that's really good to hear. So, th so this is the last question. So as you're and I say, yes, you are recently out of university, but you've achieved a lot in that short time and you've got so much to achieve over your lifetime. And, and that's why I said in terms of being able to visualize where you can be, it's probably unimaginable to you. And because myself, when I graduated, nobody ran to the, the Middle East. The Middle East wasn't even considered a place for anybody to go to do events for all the the sort of foreign policy reasons one could understand what was happening many decades ago. But the world has changed. The world is global. It, 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 it is international. And people taught in one country may not always stay in that country. And I've watched event students graduate over the last 10 years, fly out to Dubai and to the Middle East and have had wonderful time and did wonderful jobs. And I now see you there doing that as well. And it's not just the Middle, Middle East, it's, it's all parts, parts of the world and even into South Asia again. So what I want you to do is give a message to students studying or about to graduate from a live events course. What advice would you give them? Looking at what you've done and where the world is now today. Keep learning. You can you every single job you go on, you will face challenges that you didn't even know would ever exist. So just accept that there is a new challenge and learn how to deal with it. And everybody always says that it's always about contacts. And do you know what? 80% of the time I'll agree it's always about who you know, but there's that 20% where you apply for a job online and then suddenly you're stage manager of Expo 2020 Awasso Plaza sometimes you've really just got to apply. You've just got to put yourself out there and you have to look. It's worth looking. If you don't have the contacts, it's not the end of the world. Just keep looking and you will find something and that something will lead you to something else. And as long as you're willing to learn, always learn, then you'll never know where you end up. That's excellent. Thank you very much, Sophia. Um, I can't. That one. <laughs> Excuse me. I didn't even prep that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm glad for the for the honesty that you've given for today's podcast, and I hope for the people who've had the time to sit and listen, um, really can take a sort of lead from what you've said and help and help them in some way develop their career in a way that they want to. So I'll say goodbye from me, Paul Walters, the International Institute of Live Events. And thank you very much again for taking your time uh, and allowing us to have this, this interview. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it's a great experience. And as long as people are willing to listen, I'm always willing to share.